0: Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, it is quickly becoming the most talked about entertainment venue in the world. Las Vegas's Sphere is an eye-popping ball of light, the world's largest video screen. And the success, fittingly enough, is shining a bright light on some Canadian content, a Canadian company that helped it come alive. Iranian rights activist and journalist Narges Mohammadi is the winner of the 2023 Nobel Peace Prize. She has fought the regime in her country for years and has paid a heavy personal price for her courage and her convictions. She remains in Tehran's notorious Evin prison. One of her friends, also a former political prisoner who spent time in that same prison now calls Canada home. And she says the prize is a massive recognition of the fight that she, mohammadi and so many others have carried on for years. Maryam Shafepour joins me to tell me all about it. Now we're all familiar with the most famous of fictional spies, the James Bonds, the Jason Bournes, the George Smiley's, and so on. But a new book details the very real story of a spy that most of you will never have heard of. It's called Cracking the Nazi Cold, the untold story of Canada's greatest spy, and its central character is Winthrop Pickard Bell, born in Halifax in 1884. Author Jason Bell, no relation, joins me to tell me all about it. But first, nine months after decriminalizing possession of small amounts of hard drugs, BC this week moved to prohibit drug use in many public places. As the province and so many others try to find the right balance to tackle the still increasingly deadly opioid crisis. We hear from one BC mayor about how things are going on the ground. You may have known about this story, regardless of where you are in the country right now. Uh, It's been nine months and a few days since the province began allowing for the possession of small amounts of so-called hard drugs, such as opioids, crack, cocaine, methamphetamine, MDMA, ecstasy, uh, for personal use. The aim was to reduce the stigma associated with substance use, support people in accessing health and social services, um, ease the workload for police, and ultimately try to cope with this opioid crisis, which has been going on now for the better part of seven years. But already there's had to have been adjustments. There's been growing concern about a jump in hard drug use in public areas, not just since this decriminalization came into place uh, back on January 31st, but it's been a growing problem. It seems to have grown even more since then. So yesterday, BC introduced legislation restricting the use of illegal drugs in public areas. That includes parks, recreation fields, bus stops, business doorways. You get the point. Here's Premier David Eby. Our compassion, our understanding that that system doesn't work to address addiction issues
1: does not mean that we need to tolerate public
0: drug use uh in our communities Uh, indeed well it comes as i mentioned uh nine months into bc's three-year pilot program with that decriminalization of the possession of small amounts of drugs and uh, this simply allows it allows authorities to tell people to move on from an area or to stop consuming an illegal substance in that area Um, it's led to some concerns obviously part of the whole issue with decrim was to try and uh, remove the stigma, give people a safer space to to do drugs, needless to say, because that has been part of the issue. So the province's chief coroner uh, worries that the changes uh, could be dangerous.
2: Forcing people to hide their drug use in you know a, a back alley or somewhere that is out of sight of, of anybody, um, while I can see that has appeal for those who might find you know drug use uncomfortable, um, it certainly will raise the risks for those who are using drugs.
0: That's Lisa LaPointe. The problem here, of course, is that unregulated drug toxicity has become the leading cause of death in B.C. for people aged between 10 and 59, accounting for more deaths than murders, suicides, accidents and natural diseases combined. Can you imagine? So it's a huge problem. And like every other province, B.C. is still sort of navigating its way through this crisis. One community that cracked down early back in June ahead of the summer break, when presumably lots more kids would be in parks and so on, was Port Coquitlam. And Mayor Brad West of Port Coquitlam joins me now. Uh, Brad, thank you so much. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. So tell me just from from your point of view, uh, on the front lines, how has this nine months of decriminalization gone?
3: Well, I don't think it's been very successful in its aims, uh, and the numbers prove that out. Uh, Since decriminalization has occurred, we are actually at a record number of British Columbians dying from overdose. So um, if there was an idea that decriminalization was going to uh, put a damper on those numbers and start to maybe even see them come down, uh, that certainly has not happened What's also happened is that on the ground, we saw a concerning increase in uh, public drug use uh, and particularly in areas that I would consider to be uh, completely inappropriate for drugs like fentanyl, for instance, uh, being utilized. And, And I think that that's an important point because the vast, vast majority of deaths that are happening, upwards of 90 plus percent, Uh, are, in fact, from fentanyl. Uh, Fentanyl is a deadly, evil drug. It is a drug that kills people, devastates families, obliterates neighbourhoods. And when we talk about the overdose crisis, when we talk about the opioid crisis, we are really talking about fentanyl. And we were in a situation where we were finding uh, fentanyl being used In a child's playground, for instance, Mm -hmm. Uh, just completely inappropriate um, for the obvious reasons, not the least of which is if a child even comes into physical contact with fentanyl, it can seriously harm them or even kill them. Um, Now, when the province made the changes that they did, it created a gray area. Uh, It meant that police no longer had the legal authority nor did municipal bylaw officers have the legal authority to tell an individual, I'm sorry, you can't do that here. The the reality is that we have had de facto criminalization in this province for a very long time. That is, police were not arresting people for simple possession of these drugs, but they did have the legal ability to say to them, you can't do that here, you're going to have to go somewhere else. Uh, And the province removed that when they decriminalized it. And that's why our city stepped in, because we just thought it was unacceptable to see those types of drugs being used in places where young people and families were gathering. The province has now addressed that through their legislation, which I'm pleased they have. But really, this is the type of thing that should have been in place on day one. And it suggests to me that this was not a very well-thought-out program rather something that they rushed out, uh, and they've been trying to clean up the various impacts ever since.
0: How did it work out for your for your officers? I mean, you have RCMP there as well as bylaw officers, and this is what's now going to be in place across the province. Uh, I certainly know I'm in Victoria, and, and I, I now... Keep in mind, I live downtown, so you know. Obviously, you're going to see more drug use uh, in and around downtown. Course, it's common in most big cities on the west coast now, or even smaller cities like Victoria. Uh, but I did notice an increase when this happened. I, I noticed a bit; it was a bit more brazen all of a sudden uh, than yeah. it used to be. How did it work for your bylaw officers? Because now BC will be, will be, will be across the province. This will be in place. It's already been in place since late June for you.
3: Well, what it did is it, it provided bylaw officers some legal authority to actually tell people that they couldn't do that. Now, look, I'm not naive. <laughs> there, there's some people who are going to say, you know, F off or, you know, whatever. Like they, they're just simply not going to comply. Um, and in that instance, you know, they'll escalate that to the RCMP. Um, <laughs> thankfully, in my community, in Port Coquitlam, these instances are incredibly rare but they do happen and they do happen in every single community and when they happen we can't just turn a blind eye to them someone's going to have to deal with those situations you know for me the straw that broke the camel's back was when i was talking to uh, a, a parent in our community they had their kid's birthday party uh, in one of our parks that's a beautiful playground. The kids are loving it. They're yahooing around. They're doing what kids should do, you know. And there's someone who uh, sets up a shop and 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 lights up and starts smoking crack. The parents say to them, you know, "Excuse me, can you not do that here?" And they get a bunch of expletives in their face. Right. Um, when that happens, you know, it, I, I don't, I don't view that as somehow a teachable moment where we're going to, you know tell the kids well that's just the way it goes um that's unacceptable and it needs to be dealt with and it should not be up to parents or citizens to have to deal with it um that's where our bylaw steps in that's where the police step in if necessary and so now we have the legal authority to do it and you know in in most cases the individual will comply uh, if they don't, then obviously it can be escalated through uh, the police and, you know, and they can eventually compel the person to, to leave.
0: Yeah, I should mention to listeners, you have young kids as well, right? So this this was one that hit close to home for you. As I mean, this is not something you were just hearing from your constituents. This is something that you were seeing firsthand as a parent as well. Uh, what did you make of I mean, David Eby said as much, the premier said as much. He basically said this is not, and you know, this is not carte blanche to, to do hard drugs wherever you want.
3: Well, I get that they've said that, but they have to think about the the effects of of their legislation. And again, I think this is a case of not thinking through all the impacts, rushing something through. Look, I, I get that we don't want people who have drug addiction to be dealt with by the criminal justice system. We want them to be dealt with uh, through the, the healthcare system. We want them to get better. I, I'm totally on board for that. Um but it should not be a carte blanche then to you know to do whatever the hell you want and here's the hard part about all of this and and why i think decriminalization hasn't made one iota of difference there's no treatment i mean i i I have a family member who went through a horrible horrible drug addiction uh, who ended up on the downtown east side there's probably not a family in british columbia who has not been impacted by this one way or the other there is not the treatment options available when people need them and where they need them there's huge waiting lists people are having to take out more second mortgages on their homes to be able to try and get a family member or a child into a private op- into a private uh, recovery and for a lot of people that's not an option and then on top of it you have some people who you know Ben, they're, they're alive, but they're not living.
0: I see it. You know, I, I, I you, see it every day. You, it,
3: it, 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 they, yeah. they're, you know, they're contorted up like pretzels. They're being preyed upon by other, uh, by other people uh, you know, who are bad people who, or who are also damaged people. They, this is not compassion. This is, this is not compassion. This is not human dignity. And, and my view is we need to have a form of mandatory treatment in this province. Because those people who are in in that state on the downtown East side and in other places are in no position to make a decision for themselves to get better and just leaving them in, in the state that uh, we are and, and, and somehow thinking, well, that's compassionate because we can't force them to do anything. That's not compassion at all. Um, It's, it's, It's absolutely tragic um, and and sad, actually, is what it is. It
0: is. Uh, Brad, you were mentioning before we went to break that one of the big issues here is just, I mean, you have Alberta sort of talking treatment but no safe supply. You have BC sort of focusing on safe supply and decrim. But it feels like we don't have a wraparound solution yet. And if we don't have one, then all the ideologues are wrong. They're all wrong because they can't make it work. We need a little bit of everything uh, to make this happen, and we're not seeing it yet.
3: I think you're absolutely right, Ben. Because that's reality. You know, this is not a silver bullet issue. Um, you know, and there's no one reason why someone becomes addicted to drugs. You know, in, in you know, in the case of my family member, and he's spoken publicly about this, so I can do it. He, you know, he was a promising young hockey player. You know, he was probably headed towards the NHL. Mm. Had a horrible injury. Got prescribed oxy got addicted to Oxy, and then, uh, then it was heroin, and then it progressed. Um, you know, it, it, there's no simple, easy answer here. And treatment is going to look different for different people. Uh, and, and that's why we need to have a, a system in place that provides those options to, to individuals depending on, you know, the circumstances and what they're dealing with. Uh, we don't seem to have that. Uh, like you said, it's, you know, people are viewing this, you know, as almost an academic exercise where they theorize about how it should work. And, you know, I hear a lot of that in in British Columbia, you know, well, in theory, it's going to work this way. Well, I would invite any of those, you know, experts or theorists to, to come and meet with some of the families that I've met with, you know, parents who are at their wits end, they're in tears. They're my, I mean, like you said, I'm a, I'm a father. I have a, uh, you know, a six-year-old and a two-year-old. Um, my heart breaks for these people. They are desperate. They will do anything to try and get their children help, you know, and, and the help's not there. It's, you know, it's go on a wait list. It's we'll call you in the, in, you know, in months it's, uh, you know, well, uh, you know, go go. Here's a referral. Go wait for this. Like, it's just, you know, for all the, the talk or the press releases and the announcements, it's not there on the ground.
0: It's not there in reality when people no. need it. And we're seeing that, of course, because we see it with uh, with the increased deaths, the the, the ever increasing number of, de- of deaths, and then the toxicity of the drug supply, which seems to never stop becoming more and more toxic. Brad, as always, thank you for your time. Have a great Thanksgiving weekend to you and your family.
3: You too, Ben. Thanks for having me. <laughs>
0: Well, great to have you along on this Friday night. That was you too. you You'll recognize the music. They're taking up residency in Las Vegas. Uh, Actung Baby Live at the Sphere. Now, there are lots of talk about the music, obviously, but the real focus of the night was, in fact, the venue. I don't know if you've seen pictures of this place online, uh, but it's on the strip. It's this ball of light. It's just an unbelievable-looking thing. The whole outside, the exosphere, as it's called, is is essentially a big LED screen, so they can flash whatever they want up on it. Uh, And the inside is all LED boards and the speakers are built behind the board. So it's just like one big screen and it is just remarkable looking. So the venue's exterior uh, features 580,000 square feet of LED displays. um, And it's just really quite incredible looking. Uh, and it turns out the outside, at least the exosphere, is 1.2 million pucks of LED light that turned the whole thing into a giant, fully programmable video canvas. Um, and the inside is 1.7 million pixels. It is the highest resolution of any screen own the planet. It's reported to have cost about $2 billion U.S. to build. It's the brainchild of sports powerhouse uh, MSG, or Madison Square Garden Entertainment, owner of the New York Knicks and New York Rangers, but built in Vegas. Here's uh, their CEO, James Dolan.
4: This is experiential. You know, It's something that people haven't ever felt before, and I believe they're going to love it.
0: Well, love it they have so far, if you can judge by social media. And guess what? There is a big chunk of Canadian content in that very big sphere. Uh, it's Montreal-based, Aseco Technologies that not only provided those 1.2 million pucks of LED light that light up the Vegas Strip on the outside, they also provided the the screens for the inside, uh, which is just remarkable. So a lot of Canadian content on display in Las Vegas in this now much talked about venue. Jonathan Labbe is the co-CEO of Seiko Technologies and he joins me from Montreal. Thanks so much.
4: Thanks, Ben, for having me.
0: Tell me, but I mean, I know it it was first introduced back in July, I, I think, but over the last weekend, the U2 show, and, and I mean, it's just been, what an impressive thing. What an impressive sphere. You must be, what was your reaction to seeing the finished product?
4: Well, I mean, listen, in one word, it was quite emotional um, for myself and I think for uh, many people that were present. But the experience itself is completely mind-blowing. Um, <clears throat> to see 18,000 people become part of the show. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously U2 is a fantastic band and this venue is designed <clears throat> to provide them with, uh, well, them and other artists, of course, with a completely pure canvas.
0: It is. It's such an, I mean, just to see it, um, I mean, I've, we've seen other things that are similar to it, but nothing quite of this magnitude. Tell me a bit about how Sacco got involved in the project, because I understand, of course, it's been it's been quite a while in the making.
4: Yeah, so this uh, so so Seiko was brought onto the project in 2018. There was already obviously um, uh, a vision there created by um, MSG out of New York, in terms of what they were uh, wanting to create. <clears throat> and what they did is they went out and they hired literally the best people and companies on the face of the planet for every single part of this project. Um, we first started off working with Populous, the architect for the exterior, and then not long after that, uh, MSG uh, approached us to create the visual canvas for the interior of the sphere. When you say canvas, I
0: think it's hard for people. I think people have a concept of what it is that you've built, uh, but maybe we can start with the outside because I think a lot of people have seen the outside at this point. Yeah. What What
4: is that canvas that you've built? Because it so, is very impressive well both of them are versions of LED screens okay because uh, obviously this is what Seiko uh, does we yeah. we we create uh, uh, LED screens that get integrated in different types of buildings so the outside of the sphere uh, which they refer to as the exosphere is um, is uh, basically kind of like these hockey puck looking LED pucks that we created um, and that are position. There's 1.2 million of them around the building. And that provides you with the ability to put a full image there.
0: And then in in the interior, a similar concept, but not the pucks.
4: Correct. So the interior are more in a panel type um, configuration. There's 170 million LEDs on the inside. So 170 million pixels. It is the largest and highest resolution screen of any type on earth. It's... Uh, I mean, again, when you saw
0: it, for you must have obviously understood the the concept of it. But what was your reaction when you first saw what it looked
4: like, both the EXO and the uh, and the interior? Well, I mean, <clears throat> the EXO is because uh, you're viewing it from a distance, and and you know, you can kind of envision it as the uh, you know as the inventor of the technology and such. I'm going to say that although I do this for a living, I was probably not fully ready for what I experienced on the inside. I, right. I had never seen anything like it.
0: And I gather, I gather. I mean, this has been a long time coming for Seiko as well. This is something that you've gotten better and better and better at over the years. But this must feel like a crowning achievement to some extent of all the good things, not only that you do, but that Canada does and Montreal does in this field.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> I do feel like we've been preparing most of our careers for this project, um, unknowingly. Um you know, I, I I have to give props to uh, to MSG for for this incredible vision and and, the, and and just the fact that they were that they had the foresight and the resources. Let's not forget it, it requires a lot of resources to do something like this, to want to go ahead and break boundaries and kind of show you the edge of what's possible. Um, you know that the way that they created this collaborative team that we were able to interact. So I'll give you an example, of the inside, Okay. Just for your listeners
1: mm-hmm.
4: the interior, the, the interior is completely pure. There are no speaker stacks. There are no set pieces except for whatever stage that the artist wants to have. It is, it is kind of free of debris, if you will. So it's, it's very freeing when you're inside of there and all of the speakers are located behind the video screen, the led screen that we built. And in order to achieve this, we had to understand how audio functions. So the MSG audio team and the Plot team who created this futuristic speaker system worked with us to help us understand. It. And then we created an LED video system that would allow the audio to slip through uninterrupted. And that was literally rocket science to do that.
0: Yeah, that doesn't sound, I mean, my, my TV at home doesn't sound particularly good <laughs> if you put the speakers behind, behind <laughs> it, right? Uh, that That's that's. There must have been, I mean, I know that launch happened, but there must have been some ups and downs. There always is when it comes to breaking new ground. I mean,
4: listen, we, we live to solve problems.
0: And the problems, <laughs> yeah, I was going to yeah, say, what? What, what, what's, what, we're, without going into great detail, because I know some of this is proprietary as well, but what were some of the issues that you ran? I mean, clearly trying to get these speakers to work behind these screens, trying to get, because one of the things about it, just watching the videos, is that it is so very clean. I mean, it's the cleanest yeah. looking, uninterrupted, um you know, visual presentation that you could ever expect to see.
4: Yes, exactly. Well, actually, the the problems didn't really come from uh, from the challenges from what the client was looking for. I mean, I mean, we we all understand when we're breaking new ground, you have to deal with these things. The real issues came with COVID. Let's not forget that we had to design and, and build this during COVID, and and MSG had to build this venue during COVID. So, supply chain issues, you know, getting parts and components, like simple things, those became the true challenges. Right. Not just the technological ones. Of course, we all, I mean,
0: where that would have have lay in all the same things that everybody else was having trouble uh, sourcing, I suspect. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but you know what, again, as innovators, we kind of utilize that as a way to come up with new way of doing things. I mean, we we had already been experimenting and designing uh, AI-based tools. So we actually upped our game there and utilized AI and computational programming and such to help us. Uh, design some of these features.
0: And you've mentioned this in other interviews, um, but a lot of the work that was done was done locally too. I mean, a lot of what people see when they see those, elite, see those that incredible exosphere and what happens
4: in the interior was, uh, was built in Canada. It was. It was designed and built uh, right here in Montreal.
0: Which is great. I mean, I don't think people ever, sometimes I think we forget just how much skill there is in this country when it comes
4: to the entertainment industry. Uh, that is so true. I mean, the <clears throat> Canada is a, is a real hub for, let's say call, let's call it entertainment technology, right?
0: I guess as a last thing, and this is sort of one of those questions we always wind up asking, but what does this, what does this project do you think and Seiko's involvement in it say about, about just Canada's what, what this country, what yours, what your city, uh, can achieve.
4: I think it says a lot. I think, uh, I think that uh, that the community within our country um, and the way that we think allow us to be this creative and uh, uh, and, and we have a lot of smart people here. Um, and this is what we're able to do this and many other things.
0: Yeah. I, well, I think we all look forward to at least the great thing about it, too, is although it'd be great to be inside, you can also just have if, if you can't get inside, you can also have a look at it from the outside because it's pretty impressive as well.
4: Oh, I mean, ho- hotels are selling rooms now with sphere view. That's how good it is. <laughs> well, Jonathan, I'm glad it is uh, even bigger and better than
0: you than you even you who is so intimately involved in it thought it would be, and it's it's great. Congratulations. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So are we entering the age of the mushroom? In 2020, the global mushroom market was more than 14 million tons. By 2028, it's set to grow at a compound annual growth rate of about 7%. So it's growing like, well, they're sprouting like mushrooms, right? And the reason is because they have so many different uses beyond the exotic varieties that we buy and cook up, the rise of psychedelics. Uh, there's also health drinks, music to help fight in, fighting environmental disasters, all kinds of stuff that you can do with mushrooms. And so this this week on the Global News Current Affairs show, The New Reality, they're looking at fungi future. And Joining me now with more on that is new reality producer, Carol McGrath. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is such an interesting topic to tackle because I can just imagine when you set out to do it, you kind of have to think, well, what are we going to, I mean, to me, you talk about mushrooms and, you know, you think salads, right? Or pizza and, or, <laughs> or hallucinogenics, I guess, but there's so much else out there. What was the, what was the inspiration for it?
5: Well, uh, we had done another story about sobriety. And one of the women we talked to was making drinks with cordyceps. And of course, that got us talking about how mushrooms have become so popular these days, in TV and at the markets. And should we think about looking at them? And then so we sort of started, you know, messing around in that topic. And I was surprised at just how many different ways mushrooms are being used now. It's Quite mind-blowing, actually.
0: It is. I mean, if we just start with food, because of course, mushrooms have the great uh, benefit of being meaty, and I gather that's been a big boon uh, for the for the non-meat meat market.
5: Yes, uh, yes. And apparently, since 2018, we, as Canadians, are consuming about 20% more mushrooms, and we talked to some local farmers um, who are growing and, and foraging for mushrooms and they were saying um they can't even keep them stocked they're just coming off the shelves so quickly
0: wow and and beyond that though and we we know sort of the food uses of them but there are so many other things you we already sort of talked about the wellness side of them how does that work
5: yeah so we were uh, lucky to um run into Paul Stamets in one of the northern gulf islands and we got a chance to sit down and talk with him and uh He's known for the, his psychedelic interests, but he also does a lot of other things with mushrooms. And, um, he, he was pointing out how they, all their other uses, not, um, just in health, but in helping with the environment and, um, mental health as well. So it, and, uh, he's got a few interesting projects on the go.
0: Interesting. I, I gather that one of the things about mushrooms uh, that that is so beneficial is that not only are they very low impact uh, on the planet; in fact, they're they're beneficial, and 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 that in in of itself sort of checks off a lot of boxes these days.
5: Uh, yeah, I mean, it, what we found was that mushrooms are literally everywhere. You don't even realize it because you they poke their heads up once in a while in the fall, in the spring, you know, in the right conditions around the right trees, um, but the roots of them called mycelium are running everywhere around the forests and acting as a communication uh between trees and other plants where water and food is and they're really good for the health of our planet
0: wow and and there's been some other uses as well that i was even less familiar with that i think you've probably looked at as well
5: yes we one of the most fascinating parts is um, the use of mushrooms for remediation to help clean up toxic waste. And Paul Stamets is working on a few projects, which we look into on our show. Um, and also we went up North to talk to a group who are trying to protect the Skeena watershed from potentially toxic elements. And they're using m- they're trying out mushrooms as part of that solution and they're having good success with it because mushrooms are able to break up toxic elements.
0: I had no idea. And are we talking, whatever you you say mushroom, of course, I've lived abroad. So when you live somewhere like China, there's a million kinds of mushrooms, right? But I always think of of those white mushrooms that we always have in salad or on pizza. Is that what we're talking about here? Or are there wide varieties of mushrooms used for wide variety of, of purposes?
5: Yeah, well, in that project, they tried elm oysters, mm. turkey tail, artist con, chicken of the woods, all mushrooms I'd never even heard of before, <laughs> quite frankly. I mean, I think we most people have heard of oysters, but turkey tail and chicken of the woods, I, that yeah. wasn't for me, right? Um, but apparently, we we don't even know how little we know about mushrooms. We Apparently, there are... Yeah, there are more than 1.5 million species out there and we've only identified 10% so far.
0: Wow. And and this is something this goes back, right? I don't know if you've looked into the I suspect you've looked into the history of this, but but fungi, mushrooms in general have are, have a long history uh, of being used for a bunch of different things uh, above and beyond eating.
5: Yeah, I mean and they're cultural too to some places. In Asia, they're um in some places like Japan, you bring a box of mushrooms as a gift, not a bottle of wine. Um, And and some of those mushrooms are pine mushrooms, which can sell for as much as a thousand a pound, and they grow right here in BC. No one's giving me pine mushrooms when they come no. to my
6: house. No, I don't think
0: so. <laughs> I'll try next time I come. Um, the, another thing, as a last area that I thought was kind of interesting, and I don't know if you how much you dug into this, uh, no pun intended. But the but mushrooms as leather, and I thought, I mean Hermes is doing it, Adidas is doing it, Stella McCartney. Um, wow, I had no idea you could make leather out of mushrooms
5: yeah you can make leather you can make all sorts of um products with the mycelium which is generally what they use the roots um we even spoke with a guy in the netherlands who's making coffins out of it oh wow Uh, yeah because he thought that'd be a great idea he's in the very beginning stages but you know he thought well if we bury them then it just naturally decomposes and becomes mushrooms
0: yeah I guess in that sense the mushroom is is your is the obvious I mean, it's biodegradable, right? I mean that's that's it. Once you use it, one assumes that it will be it will then just decompose.
5: yeah, it's the ultimate vegetarian everything
0: <laughs> Wow I, and so what would you like? I mean viewers are going to tune in here i I suppose a lot of people have sort of see this sort of fungi future and think, what could that be about? What do you hope they take away from it?
5: I don't think we've really recognized how important the mushroom is, how diverse it is how many different tasty varieties are, but also how it can help us with um, eco-problems, eco-toxic waste problems in the future. It has this many-layered, it has this ability to help us in so many ways. And I think, as Paul Stamets put it, it is the zeitgeist of our time. It really is um, a a way forward.
0: Yeah, it feels like we've been walking past them for for. In my case, walking past them, we're avoiding them for most of a lifetime and never giving them much thought, and here we are. They're actually going to be perhaps something very useful uh, now and into the future. Carol, thank you so much.
5: Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy the story.
6: Women, life, freedom. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the nobel peace prize for two thousand and twenty three to narges mohammadi for her fight against the oppression of women in iran and her fight to promote human rights and freedom for all.
0: It was a remarkable moment in Oslo this morning. You know the Nobel Peace Prize winner list is just something to behold, right? Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Lester Pearson, of course, the Canadian Andrei Sakharov, like Valesa, Desmond Tutu, the Dalai Lama. The list goes on and on. And you can add the name of imprisoned Iranian journalist and human rights and women's rights activist Nargis Mohammadi to that list. She was named the 2023 Nobel Peace Laureate today, just the fifth to be given that great honor while in prisoner under House arrest. The 51-year-old was awarded the prize today in recognition of the many years that she spent fighting the country's theocratic rule, the oppression of women and suppression of human rights in Iran, promoting democracy and freedom in the country for all. As a Nobel Committee Chair Barrett-Reese Anderson, who you heard earlier, makes clear mohammadi has paid a heavy personal price for her courage and conviction.
6: Her brave struggle has come with tremendous personal cost. Altogether, the regime has arrested her 13 times, convicted her five times, and sentenced her to a total of 31 years in prison and 154 lashes.
0: And that's where Mohammadi is now, in Evin Prison in Tehran, a notorious facility. Um, And there is a Canadian connection to this, because one woman in Toronto who stayed up overnight to hear this announcement, which was done at about 5 a.m. Eastern Time, was Maryam Shafapur. She knows Mohammadi. She first met her as a 19-year-old university student in Tehran when she too was detained for her activism. They built a friendship And they've met again, and then they met again when both women were held as political prisoners in that very same Evan prison. Shafapur endured two years in that jail, including 67 days in solitary confinement for promoting women's rights, free speech, reformers' politics, and the release of political prisoners, much the same as Mohammadi has done. Now, Shafapur was released in 2015 from a seven-year sentence. And in 2016, she came to Canada. But she's continued to fight for Mohammadi's release. Uh, now, of course, the Nobel Peace Prize winner. There was a brief release in 2021 only for Mohammed to be rearrested. That's why she's back in prison tonight. Um, and that caused Shafapur, that has caused Shafapur to pick up her fight once again. So you can imagine, given how close uh, she is to the new Nobel Peace Prize winner and the history that they have together uh, and the time they spent together in prison, just what a roller coaster of emotions it has been today for Maryam Shafapur. And she joins me now. Uh, Mariam. thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for inviting me. What was your reaction today? I mean, it happened. To, I'm in BC, so it happened overnight for me. And I woke up this morning and I thought, "Wow, isn't that great that that the Nobel Peace Prize would be awarded to someone like Narges no, Mohammadi uh, and and all that she's fought for?"
2: Honestly, I didn't sleep last night because the announcement was 5 a.m. Uh, in Toronto time. So when I heard, I just I was crying and. I was so happy. It was very exciting news for me. I've known I know Nagas for a long time since I was 19, and she always been my lifeline hero. It was like an amazing news for me.
0: It is. I mean, for people who don't know the story, you know her, your're friends. Tell me about when you met because I think it was way back when you were still in university.
2: Yes, Uh, when I was 19 years old, I was called by the court because of my peaceful activities uh, at university. I was so lonely. I didn't know that what will happen to me. And one of my friends introduced Nargis to me and she calmed me down and teach me how to define myself. And she introduced me to a lawyer from that time. She's my hero and just a symbol of unstoppable women who is fighting for freedom and justice.
0: For listeners who aren't in Tyler, who may not have known even her name until today, uh, for someone who's so close to you, tell me a bit about her work and what she represents to a woman in your position.
2: She was uh, in a school uh, at the university. She started her peaceful activities as a journalist and human rights defender, in last 32 years, she has initiated so many powerful and effective campaigns against this penalty, against, against the arbitrary detention, against the solitary confinement, against what it is unjust, and it's happening against humanity in Iran. She, um, she has been arrested 13 times in last three decades, and... Uh, she has been sentenced to five different line term sentence in prison. In the last 20 years, she almost been in prison all the time. But the thing is that she really believes in her dreams and her goals. And, you know, the regime cannot stop her.
0: Her convictions, right? I mean, she's paid a very heavy price. I know that there was a time uh, she has been in a prison that unfortunately, I think a lot of Canadians are familiar with in Tehran, a prison that you've been in, too. And you saw her there. You, 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 you've seen her there. You know what she's living through and how difficult it must be, um, even despite the courage of her convictions, how difficult it is to be in that prison.
2: Uh, yes. Uh when I uh, was in prison, she was almost kidnapped from her home uh, in Tehran, and she transferred to Evin. And honestly, when I saw her familiar face, I got happy because I really love her, and I uh, I do know that she will bring a lot of positive energy to that prison and you know prisoners. The day. Her twins said goodbye to her. I was in prison as well. And I told her a little daughter, she was only eight years old at that time. I said to her, I I promise to you, you'll see your mother very soon. And she said, no, auntie, I know that. I won't see her soon, but just please take care of her. I, a few days after that, I was released from prison and I was witness of all these painful years. Uh, she was separated from her twins and she didn't see how they grow up and she wasn't there for them. But, you know, many people, for example, my colleagues, um, human rights activists, journalists always ask me how she can tolerate this much pain and keep continue and fight for freedom and justice. Um, one day she explained some memories to me that because always the regime tried to change her prison, because in each prison she tried to just gather prisoners and teach them and educate them about their rights. And regime are always afraid that, for example, even in prison, she do a campaign, she does a campaign and just prisoners do protest or something. So they always try to change her prisons, but in each prison, she style women who have been under death penalty for a long time, for example, nine years, 11 years. And all of them, they recognize Nargis and they told uh, Nargis, you are the only hope we have to be out of this prison one day because you are fighting against this penalty.
0: Miriam, I know you fought hard. Personally, you fought hard to try to get her released. You've been at the front of many campaigns to try to get her out of prison. It was briefly successful, if I remember correctly, but she's back in jail now. I'm wondering what you hope this Peace Prize will do for the efforts to try to get her out of jail.
2: You know, for so many years, the world ignored us. And I remember the very early day of campaign. We started. I wasn't alone. Uh, we were 100 activists and journalists around the world joined to do campaign for an I guess. And at that time, you know, nobody cares about Iran and what's going in Iran and human rights violations against Iran happening. But after years, we think that now people they do care and they realize that if a movement for women being successful in Iran, it's a success for women around the world and even sure. um, it's success for humanity.
0: You know, we, of course, i th- I think a lot of us have been paying close attention to the protests that that began uh, last year. And it feels like there has been attention finally paid to what you and 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 Ms. Mohammadi and so many others have been fighting for for so long. It's been a lonely fight, I know
2: ah uh, yes, I remember it when uh, first articles from Nargis were was published in Globe and Mail. And I received thousands of uh, messages, very kind messages from Canadians and just kindly searched my name and found my social media accounts and messaged me how we can be any help. And it was so overwhelming for me. You know, an always said that uh, it's not like you give us a platform, you saving our lives. People in every corner of this to fight with us, uh, align with us uh, against this regime will be part of the victory be sure be happen uh, in the near future.
0: And, and it's been it's been tough for, I know that even here in Canada you have not been left alone that you too pay continue to pay a price not 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 in behind the bars of even of, prison, but you continue to pay a, a price for your <laughs> activism as well and that's not easy even here in Canada.
2: Ah uh, yes, of course. You know the um, the brutal regime in Iran just do not leave people alone to do their activities against them. So that's why people's support can huge effect on our activity, and it's kind of inspiration and motivation for us to keep continue. Canadians really help us and support us uh, in a specific thing last year. I I really appreciate their kindness and generosity.
0: It feels like today is a day that that could build a lot more momentum. One hopes so. How do you think the regime will react to this acknowledgement? I know they've already dismissed it, more or less, but wouldn't it be nice to see Nargis Mohammadi accept this award in person? I, I wonder if that might happen.
2: They really started already to attack her uh, in social media, in uh, their government backed television. Uh, I know that uh, Nagas uh, hear the uh, news from governmental TV uh, when they attacked her. But since that, they feel that they are more isolated more than ever. And all these powerful voices will no good end to this regime soon.
0: Just listening to you speak about her, I, I can't imagine a, a more worthy winner of the Nobel Peace oh, yeah. Prize. And there are yeah. so many no, worthy winners of this prize over the years.
2: Yes. Um, you know, uh, other strong women who were nominated for Nobel Peace Prize this year, they are my friends as well. And I they are my heroes. I, I really appreciate their works. And I guess the Nobel content just had a very tough time to choose between all of them. But uh, as you said, anagis is different for me, and I guess for different, it's different for Iranian women. I just observing social media and talking to my friends and family, and I feel that Iranian women uh, they really consider this prize for their own as well, and they felt that, you know, they are the winners alongside with Nagus. They feel that after years, they've been here, and finally the world recognized their all-powerful and brave uh, struggles against darkness. It's huge for us as a nation, and half of the nation, Iranian women who fight really hard for all day rights in these years.
0: Well, Maryam, uh, my congratulations to you, despite the circumstances for uh, Nargis Mohammadi as well. I know it's difficult to know that she's still behind bars and you continue this fight to try to get her released. But I really appreciate you speaking with me tonight.
2: Thank you so much for your time and for the opportunity. I admire your courage, Miss. Uh... Trench
3: sylvia trench i admire your luck mr
0: bond james bond yeah i mean fictional spies we know their names right the most famous of them of course james bond the jason Bournes, george smiley emily polifax jack ryan the list goes on and on and on um but a new book it's not surprising perhaps that the real ones are a lot less famous. Uh, And a new book details the very real story, the very true story of a spy that most of you will never have heard of. I hadn't. Um, It's called Cracking the Nazi Code, the untold story of Canada's greatest spy, and its central character is a guy named Winthrop Pickard Bell. It's a great name. He was born in 1884 in Halifax. He was an academic who studied at the likes of Mount Allison, McGill, and Harvard, where he later taught philosophy. And remember that that philosophy part, because it's a key to this story. Uh, But he also spent years working, as it turns out, as an undercover agent for the Canadian and British governments. He was known as Agent A-12, not that far off 007 as an Agent A-12. And according to the book, built off archives that had stayed partially classified for decades, He was also the first spy to crack Hitler's deadliest secret code, the framework of the final solution, the Holocaust. Uh, Cracking the Nazi Code is the first book to illuminate what are called the astounding exploits of Winthrop Bell, Agent A12. And joining me now is author Jason Bell. He's an associate professor of philosophy at the University of New Brunswick. And again, the book is called Cracking the Nazi Code, the untold story of Canada's greatest spy. Jason, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben, for
7: having me on your show.
0: It's so, you know, certainly an alluring, uh, the untold story of Canada's greatest spy suggests we don't know exactly, or many of us won't have heard of the person that you're describing. Where did you develop this fascination with Winthrop Pickard Bell?
7: Well, it was it was pure serendipity. So I was looking for connections between the philosophical fields of pragmatism and phenomenology, which sounded to me a lot alike. Uh, but there were no figures who seemed to have concretely uh, connected them yet. Right. But there seemed to be too many coincidences for th- there not to be somebody there. And so I just uh, made a fact-finding mission to Germany. This was in 2008 as I was finishing my PhD in philosophy, just looking to see what I could find. And the reason is, is because in, in the center of Germany, there's a city called Göttingen where the founder of phenomenology, Edmund Husserl, taught. And a couple right. of decades later, there was a key pragmatist who studied there named Josiah Royce. So I thought there was no way they could have met there, but I thought maybe they read something in common. And you know that's kind of the best I was hoping for. So I was there for a, a week or so. And in the last afternoon of my trip, I did one last search of the archives. And there I found a dissertation that had been written on Josiah Royce directed by Edmund Husserl. So that was astounding to me. That was the missing the link, link. Right. And
0: uh, that's that, yeah. It, yeah, go ahead. It, it
7: was it was amazing. And uh I, I uttered some kind of choice words uh when I found it. Um and but there were a couple of pages that were being held under uh, that excuse me there were a couple of, of, of pages that were were not in the original dissertation. And so I found that Mount Allison University in New Brunswick had uh had just uh cataloged those papers and announced this on the internet but it said uh these papers uh were still under restriction ah, and so I curious I mean it's so what an
0: esoteric <laughs> topic to still be under I mean not no, no offense but what a very academic topic to have a sort of under under secrecy uh, attached to it
7: yeah, and, and you know, one never knows, you know, why there's the secrecy there. It could be, you know, family secrets. It could be scandals. It could be you know, money stuff. And so I did not not even venture a hypothesis. Uh, I just wrote to the president of the university. I told him uh, my scholarly purpose. I asked if the restrictions could be lifted, and he agreed. I later learned he agreed after the university had the foreign an office and confirmed that these ah. documents were declassified. Uh, so I I flew into the university. Uh, this was in uh, 2008, and I j- began opening boxes, and I did not yet find the espionage story. I just found a philosophy story that, that Winthrop Bell uh, connected these two great movements, pragmatism and phenomenology. I asked the president for uh, a postdoctoral fellowship, and uh, he granted it. Uh, and then in the second year of that postdoctoral fellowship, I kind of gotten on top of the philosophy part of it, and I started opening up other boxes. And then I found uh, this espionage story, and I've been chasing it ever since.
0: It's, it's amazing how you can start off looking for one thing and land in a completely different story. Who was Winthrop Bell then, as you found out, just beyond having written that, that perfect dissertation for you? What else had he done? Because he seems to have led a pretty fascinating life.
7: Yeah, well, so so the first kind of uh, detour from philosophy for me was I found uh, that he had published the first warning of Hitler's plans for the Holocaust in 1939. So this was three years before the next warnings appeared in the press. Uh, So I gave a a, a talk about that uh, in Halifax. Um, and then I wanted to go back and really look at these papers and figure out how he had gotten that, and that's when I really got uh, in, into opening some of the non-philosophy boxes and found uh, that Bell had worked as an MI6 intelligence agent, briefing prime ministers, the Canadian Prime Minister Robert Borden, the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George. He'd briefed the heads of MI6, he'd briefed the uh, the central drafters of the Versailles Peace Treaty, uh, and so this person was Winthrop Bell was. Uh, probably at that moment the very best connected spy in the world this was in 1919
0: wow and and yet he he also was a professor right i mean he had this sort of this he also had this very reputable career that had nothing as you as you suggested earlier had nothing to do with spying at least not
7: to the outside eye Uh, that's exactly right so so he before he became a spy his intention was to become a philosophy professor uh World War One broke out while he was writing his dissertation in Germany. He was arrested he was thrown in prison uh which ironically turned into the perfect espionage training camp so he got to know uh he got to know the German language perfectly uh He was in close contact with uh, his friends from from university uh physicists and mathematicians who were recruited into German military intelligence uh and they trusted him completely and were sharing secrets with him. Uh, So when he got out of prison at the end of war in 1918, he had a crucial choice to make. Would he go uh, into philosophy? Would he go into government service? Uh, Borden had offered him a position with with the intelligence service, uh, and he thought about it for a while and uh, realized that Britain's first offer was too safe. They were going to make him uh, a desk analyst, Mm -hmm. Uh, and he said uh, he'd take the job if it were a dangerous posting in Germany, and the foreign office agreed uh They gave him a cover as a reuters journalist and and sent him into Berlin.
0: Wow. And and this and, and because I gather he also had I mean at the same time he had also was a professor at Harvard and so on I guess that's after the fact. Um, but one of the most interesting things that you point out here is that he warns in 1939 of of this impending holocaust as you as you've put it, um, and no one listens, no one listens. people don't want to hear his information. What happened at that point because I gather he had been a trusted confidant, as you pointed out to many others earlier, and all of a sudden they didn't want to hear what he was saying.
7: Well, there's kind of a, a two track story here. So, so uh, Winthrop wanted to warn his intelligence contacts and he wanted to warn the public. So he uh, met and briefed uh, l- leading figures in Canadian politics. Uh, he also wrote to his friends in uh, the intelligence services. Uh, and there it's hard to say exactly uh how they how they approached his warnings uh but we do know that in l- later that year 1939 after the germans invaded poland francis Dayak, who was uh bell's contact in the us state department he was uh, a member of a group called the pond which is the predecessor organization to the cia uh wrote to winthrop and uh talked about how impressed he was uh, about Winthrop's warning in the spring of 1939 uh, that racial massacres were going to happen, uh, so this this letter that's at the Mount Allison Archives is this concrete proof that the American government uh, knew about these genocides. So this is two years before the next known uh, warnings that that have been found in secret files. So this is really important uh, materials. Uh, so Dayak asked Winthrop to send along a copy of his uh, reports. Uh, obviously so that he could he he could share this around the State Department so I think at at the level of the intelligence services uh, I think Winthrop was taken very seriously and the reason is is because in 1919 he predicted uh, that a group of racist nationalist militant Germans were planning race war uh, a generation in the future so he was talking about 20 years in the future and here it happened uh, so so in, so Bell, you know, seemed to his friends in the intelligence business like a prophet at this point. Uh, the uh, the other track was the, the journalistic track. So so Winthrop had been a journalist. He'd been a Reuters journalist. His articles ran all over the world: Canada, uh, the United States, Great Britain, uh, and even further afield. Uh, and so he put on his journalistic hat. And in the spring of, of uh, 1939, he wrote wrote up a warning meant for public consumption. Uh, that said that Hitler and his top uh, officers were planning racial exterminations all over the world, that Hitler planned to kill all non-Aryans, so all indigenous populations everywhere in the earth, that this was uh, uh, central to Hitler's logic, that that Hitler thought that if any other races were left alive in the earth, that ultimately they would kill the Germans. Mm-hmm. So the only salvation of, of of the German race would be to kill everybody first. And Winthrop sent that to uh, trusted editors throughout Canada. So this was at a time uh, when the Gestapo was active uh, in North America and had already proven its willingness to assassinate its enemies. Uh, so he didn't send these just to any, anybody. He he sent them to people who could be trusted, who must have had their own intelligence contacts. Uh, but then he got a series of rejection letters back uh, in the spring of, of 1939, saying that he was pasting together passages to make Hitler look bad uh, or that Hitler's emotional excesses had carried him away, that there was absolutely no way that Hitler could seriously be intending these racial exterminations all over the globe. Uh, Later in the year, when Hitler invaded Poland, journalists looked again at this and then gave Winther Bell the hearing that he deserved. So his, his articles were published in in Saturday night magazine, a, a leading Canadian news weekly, uh, under the under uh, headlines declaring that Hitler was was planning exterminations, and this ran under a, a bold heading he- headlines uh, in November 1939 and December of 1939. Uh, the next known warnings uh, appeared in English language newspapers in 1942. Right. So even though there was the six month delay before his warnings were published, uh, they still eventually made their way into print uh, and t- to the State Department and uh served to be an early warning that uh, frightened America into beginning to defend the British Empire, whereas before that, they were remaining neutral.
0: Why uh, Jason is so little known about him? I mean, he, his writings appeared in Saturday Night. Uh, he was a Reuters correspondent, obviously. Uh, he, had been, he had the ear of many the powerful. He seemed to have, uh, you know, very, very solid information about many things that were coming, including the Holocaust. Uh, what happened to his legacy? What happened to him once the war
7: was over? Well, he he wanted to be unknown. So this is a remarkable facet of his personality. He was offered membership in, in the order of the British Empire after his intelligence service in, in 1919, and he refused it. So this was extremely rare to to refuse this prestigious honor that would have uh, you know been a, a tremendous calling card for a professional and political career. Uh, I think one of the principal reasons that he refused the honor is if he'd accepted it, it would have blown his cover and endangered his sources uh, he was offered uh, other prestigious postings so there were people uh, uh prominent canadians who in the way in uh, in the lead up to, to world war ii wanted him to become an ambassador uh to to try to keep japan out of the war uh there were famous philosophers who wanted him to, to publish uh, books uh but bell wanted to work behind the scenes so that was his style he he liked to advise people uh, and he and he felt like it seems like uh, that that he could be most effective in this if his name were not known. And in fact, that let him in 1934 go into Nazi Germany. Uh, he was able to, uh, to to sound early warnings about what Hitler was up to two prominent uh, intelligence contacts. If he'd been famous, that would have simply been impossible for him to do.
0: Indeed. And then what happens to him? Because uh, history is also uh, not perhaps just not, not not ignored, but in some senses has failed to recognize uh, who he was even back then in in the many in the 80 years since.
7: Well, yeah. So basically what had happened is uh, his his papers were being held under restriction. And I suspect the reason is uh, because one of his top sources in Nazi Germany was the German chief of the radar service who was an anti-Nazi uh, named Wilhelm Runga. So this is one of the kind of the other amazing discoveries uh, that I report about in my, in my book is that mm-hmm. Wilhelm Runga took what had been an insurmountable Nazi radar lead uh, in the early 1930s and then utterly sabotaged it. Uh, by the end of the war, the Nazi radar Nazi radar was in total disarray. That may well have made the dif- di- difference between victory and defeat. If if mm-hmm. the Nazis had had radar, uh, it would have been game over. This this was such a tremendous advantage. Uh, Runga had invented the invented radar. had been been part of the team that invented it, uh, but betrayed Nazi secrets uh, to the West, and then afterwards syst- systematically dis- dismantled the Nazi radar advantage. After World War II, uh, Winthrop, who knew that uh, Runga was an anti Nazi, uh, recommended Runga to his contacts in the CIA and to MI six. And Runga became uh, a crucial figure during the Cold War. And so Bell's papers were simply, you know, too hot uh, to be revealed to the public. So that's why they remained uh, classified all, all those years. When I finally asked for them to be declassified, of course, Runga had died. Uh, those secrets were no longer secrets. Uh, of course, I didn't know what I was asking for when I, when I asked for them to be declassified. But uh, that, that's the principal reason why people didn't know about it. Historians simply could not get in there beforehand. Right.
0: Didn't know what they were looking for until someone came along looking for uh, a, a philosophical dissertation on philosophy that turned into a treasure trove of uh, of Canadian history in many ways. Jason, thank you so much.
7: Thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate being on your show.
0: You know there were jobs numbers out today that happens at the near the beginning of the first Friday of every month, I believe and uh, there was good news on both sides of the border. The Canadian economy added sixty four thousand more jobs in September. The unemployment rate is five point five percent for the third month in a row in the u s three hundred and thirty six thousand jobs in September, the largest monthly spike since January a big increase over August so I mean on the job front everything 's looking pretty good, right. But as Canadians gather for Thanksgiving, and this is a bit of an anomaly, as they gather for Thanksgiving, they likely won't be talking about those pretty positive job market numbers. Um, It's not that, that they'll be talking about around the table. Instead, You know what people will be talking about, I think, is just how tough it's been to get by over the past 12 months since the last time people sat down for Thanksgiving dinner. A new survey showed that the number of Canadians who say they're unable to meet, unable to meet their financial obligations and are facing mounting financial stress has jumped a lot in the past year. The 15th Annual National Payroll Institute Survey of Working Canadians found that 20%, a 20% year-over-year increase in the number of those experiencing financial stress. 20%, that's a huge jump, with 63% of them saying they spend all of their net pay each month, and 30% of those spending more than their net pay, which of course means taking on debt or dipping into your savings just to survive each pay cycle. Um, James Sloan Minchell here in BC, he and his husband have changed all of their spending habits to the point where they sold their home to go back to the rental market. Have a listen.
4: Everything has changed. The grocery habits, the the food my dog eats, the, um, the length and distance of which vehicle we drive. Oh, we're gutted. We are absolutely gutted.
0: And absolutely not alone. Joining me now is Peter Zanatakis. He's president of the National Payroll Institute. They uh, carried out this survey and he joins me now. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. Uh, surprised at all by these numbers. I think if you look out there and hear just anecdotally that maybe not, but uh, you've been doing this survey for a long time now, and these are some pretty big jumps.
1: Uh, Financial stress storm has uh, picked up some significant strength, and it's uh, far more intense than initially uh, predicted. Uh, Now, this continues a trend that began in 2021 after an initial improvement in 2020 when pandemic lockdowns forced Canadians to save, which appears to be the calm before the storm, but this year's research indicates that immediate action is required to uh, protect working Canadians from further intensifying financial stress as increased interest rates, inflation, and the high cost of living are all combining to really severely impact financial wellness.
0: So so take me through these numbers because I've been looking at them. uh, And again, I think anecdotally, they're not that, perhaps not that surprising, but when you think about what these numbers say? I mean, these are pretty pretty dire. Sixty three percent of people that you surveyed spending all of their net pay. I mean, that's a lot of people.
1: So the the number of financially stressed working Canadians is just, first of all by twenty percent in a single year, and it represents now nearly four out of um, you know ten working Canadians. Um, and 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 of those who are financially stressed. Um, you know, 66% um, are living paycheck to paycheck. They're 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 um, you know uh, just making it by, and 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 half of those are, are are overwhelmed by their debt. Now, the the key issue here as well is spending. 60% are spending all of their paycheck, and 30% are spending beyond their paycheck. That means they're dipping into either savings or um, incurring more debt for even things like essentials.
0: And tell me a bit about about the income here, because I think one associates struggling for paycheck to paycheck, uh, obviously, with those making less money. But you also found in this survey that those with with what would be considered to be in the past, at least relatively comfortable salaries are also struggling these days with the same kinds of stresses or at least similar stresses to many others.
1: You know, while everyone wants to make more money, um, you know, being financially stressed is not really determined by your income bracket. Um, in fact, those making over $100,000 comprise about one third of the financially stressed uh, cluster. And, and and so this um, is something that uh, Canadians really need to pay attention to, because it, it's really the behaviors around managing debt, spending habits and savings that really determine your level of financial stress or whether you're able to cope or actually even be um, financially comfortable. So. While, you know, income, uh, more income will obviously help, uh, it isn't the panacea in terms of, um, you know, getting yourself out of this financial stress um, situation.
0: So what you're saying, in other words, is that what's happened with interest rates and inflation in the past little while has caught those who mightn't have been, those who were sort of teetering a bit um, and has hit them hard. In, In other words, there's been very little, the safety net left because of what we've seen with both inflation and interest rates in the past little a while when it comes to people's, just what they need to dish out every month to survive?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it, interest rates, inflation, the high cost of living, those are beyond our control. What's in our control is how you budget, how you manage your finances with the money that's coming in. And, and those who, um, you know, didn't exhibit good Financial habits, uh, in terms of managing their debt, their spending habits, um, and, and even putting money aside in terms of savings are the ones that are, are really struggling right now. And, and because of this pressure that's happening, um, you know, um, economically, uh, this is really taking a toll on the household finances
0: yeah, as you pointed out, a twenty percent jump in those feeling financially stressed is a huge jump. I mean, it's gone from twenty to forty percent of working Canadians, which is a a big number. You found this is obviously having an impact um and we all know this uh, who who if we I think most of us have been in debt at some point in our lives, um that this is having an impact beyond just dollars and cents, right? This has an impact far beyond your uh, your 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 bank account, in other words.
1: Alarmingly, <laughs> the research indicated that financially stressed Canadians are admitting that they feel more isolated due to the rising cost of living. And 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 they're also unable to keep their growing stress from affecting those closest to them. And you know, with with half of them sharing that their financial stress has been felt by by the ones that they love. The other, the other important thing here as well, is that um it's caused um you know, one in five um, to actually take personal sick days. So financial stress is also being impacted in the workplace as well.
0: Yeah, yeah you were mentioning, yeah, that that and, and it affects the employer as well, because clearly if their employees are stressed and taking time off, this is having uh, a cascading effect on their job performance. And that has a perform an impact on on the company they work for, no doubt.
1: Um, you know, 40% of the financially stressed Canadians admit that financial stress has impacted their workplace performance. And this is something that, you know, employers really need to pay attention. And, you know, stress around finances, um, you know, causes an erosion of productivity and employee engagement in the workplace. And, and that has been estimated at $45 billion in lost productivity across the economy. Uh, all because of the distraction and time spent at work worrying and dealing about finances.
0: Peter Tedatakis is with us this half hour. He's president of the National Payroll Institute. They've just released their 15th national uh, survey of working Canadians and it has some pretty sobering numbers in it, 20% year-over-year increase in the number of those experiencing financial stress in this country, which mightn't come as a surprise to any of us given the high cost of living and so forth. 63% of those saying they spend all their net paycheck each month, 30% of them more than their net pay. Um, Peter, in this survey too, I mean, I gather there is sort of a look into the onto the horizon to see what may li- lie ahead. And, and there wasn't a whole lot of cause for optimism here just yet, at least not in the short term?
1: Well, the the, the the issue right now is we've got a really strong labor market, people are working, um, and they're making um, income, they're getting paid. Um, and so, um, you know, if the economy sort of deteriorates, and, and if unemployment starts going up, and uh, heaven forbid, you know, someone in the household uh, does lose their job, it, it just adds that additional, that additional pressure. So the key to success is really being able to manage Um, The finances as best as possible. And there's a couple of key things that, you know, Canadians need to focus in on spending and debt being really, really critical here.
0: Yeah, I mean, these days, debt, debt can be a real I mean, given interest rates and so on. Debt can be a real problem. I mean, I, I know lots of people. It's it's tough at any time, but nowadays, with so, with so little maneuverability, uh, it feels even tougher. Do you have it? I mean, I know this is not necessarily a big part of this survey, uh, but you you obviously have suggestions. You're sort of telling people, you know, listen, there isn't much in the way of, of leeway right now, so you really got to the belt tightening now more important than ever. Unfortunately,
1: well, it's tough to tell Canadians to reduce spending on essentials, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 and, and save when. There's nothing left over. But, you know, people are going to have to make some hard choices on some of that discretionary spending. But one of the best ways for Canadians to positively affect their financial wellness is by reducing reliance on debt and and, and also consolidating the sources of debt uh, to more effectively pay off um, what's already owed through consolidation um, services. Because we found that that those who are financially stressed have four times the sources of debt. So it could be credit card, car loan, line of credit. And, and, and that's a, that's a trend that we see in the financially stressed group. So, uh, dealing with the debt is probably one of the things that, that needs to happen because you don't want to continue down this spiral.
0: Yeah, and getting some advice too, because I I you know, the isolation aspect of it that you spoke about earlier is very common, right? People don't want to talk about debt. Um, but trying to find someone to help you through it, I mean, there are people out there who can advise you on how best to manage debt, no matter how insurmountable it may seem.
1: Yeah, there's debt consolidation services, uh, those who do um have uh financial advisors or or you know, or thinking about it. Uh, financial advisors also uh, can play a role in terms of helping you manage your your, your finances. But but trying to do it alone sometimes isn't uh, the best option. So um, there are some sources out there to uh, help you deal with your finances. And given the, the level of stress and given the percentage of Canadians who are now in that category, it's uh, probably wise to reach out.
0: You know, what did you walk away from, in in this in this survey because i know you've probably read the other 14 but this must have really jumped out at you that this has become a pretty serious i mean we knew it already but i think your survey paints it uh, as well as any that we've reached a really serious situation right now with with affordability in this country
1: so the 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 the, the big takeaways uh are are the, the magnitude of the jump the big change in in like in one year we saw a massive increase uh to the uh, to the uh to the number of financially stressed and if this continues then you know this is why we're characterizing this as um a bit of an emergency right uh the other component here as well is that you know uh canadians are indicating that it is having more than just sort of an impact on their finances having emotional personal impacts and and this is uh something that really jumped out uh, of the page when we looked at the analysis, and and you know if this continues, it you know obviously is going to weigh down on on the family situation and also on the uh, the the you know the work situation as well.
0: Yeah, and as you pointed out, we we are in a fairly strong labor market, right? And that in of itself is is a bit of an anomaly. Normally, we associate these kinds of of issues and especially this kind of sentiment with times that are tough employment wise, and we're actually in a good period employment wise.
1: Yeah, we, we, we can't predict, um, you know, uh, whether the economy is going to go in recession or how deep that recession is going to be. Um, you know, whether, you know, we're going to have our job, uh, in the near future or, uh, things are are going to go, um, you know, sour. But, but we, what we do have control over is our ability to manage our finances. And that's something that, those types of behaviors are around some of those core determinants of uh, financial wellness uh, need to be taken seriously, um, whether it's through budgeting, whether it's through uh, consolidating debt, um, uh, making those hard decisions on some of those discretionary spending items. Um, you know that you know every every the Canadians need to use every tool in the toolkit mm-hmm. to uh, kind of dig themselves out of this um, and it starts in the household for sure.
0: Peter, thank you so much. Thank Thank you. you very much.